So yeah, my name is Stephen. I'm the family pastor here at Crosswinds. Um, and as we begin this morning, uh, I want to give you a little glimpse of what we do with our kids' ministry here at Crosswinds. So kids, I'm going to need your help with this, and this is how we pray on Wednesday nights and in kids' worship. So everyone gets to participate. We're going to put one hand up, another hand up, clap in your lap, and let's pray. God, thank you that we are your family, that we are your people, that we get to gather as one this morning. Let our hearts be humbled as we read and study your word, that we, we may look more and more like you. Amen. So you can turn in your Bibles to Psalm 78, and kids, as Pastor Jordan mentioned, you have those notes. There's a spot, if you need help finding it, it's at the top of that first side. The, what passage are we looking at today? And you can write Psalm 78, 1 through 8 there. But before we begin, I want to tell you a story. It all started 11 years ago. Four men, four world-class athletes trained and practiced together, and they practiced for four years. All the preparation led them to a big race, the four by 100 meter. And this wasn't any race. The stage for this race was the Summer Olympics 2016. These four men knew it was going to be a tight race between them and the Jamaican team, but they had put in effort. And as the race starts, they take off, and in show of all this effort, they're actually in the lead. Like, people are astonished. People are, are watching and waiting, holding their breaths, and as the baton is passed from the first runner to the second runner, it goes perfect, just like they practiced. From the, the second to the third, perfect, just like they practiced. It looks like they're going to win. Then comes the most important handoff, getting it to the anchor runner. Tyson Gay goes to make the handoff to the anchor runner, Mike Rogers, and it's botched. It takes too long. They're outside of the box, and not only do they not get first, they're completely disqualified. Four years of training for a gold medal lost on a bad handoff. Psalm 78 describes just how important the handoff is of knowing God to the next generation. Because a failed handoff, when it comes to knowing God, can have tremendous repercussions to the next generation and beyond. So as the family pastor here, I have such a burden and passion for the next generation. Kids and students in the room... Listen really closely, kids and students. You are not the future church. You are a part of the church today. And beloved church, we need to pass on to them well so that all the young people here can be mighty men and women of God, that it could be said of them, the word said of David, that they would be men and women after God's own heart. So kids, students, we've got notes for you. I want you to pay attention. This is for you just as, much, just as much as it is for the, all the adults. Or if you don't have kids, this is for you. If you don't have kids at home anymore, this is for you. This isn't just a sermon for parents this morning, but a call for us as a church, as a community of God to do together. There's an old proverb that says, it takes a village to raise a child and I would say it takes a church to raise a, a child, or it takes a church to make disciples. 
So yes, kids and students, you can partake in helping your siblings or those younger than you with this as well. And this is not just me up here to do a sermon to beg for volunteers. That's not what we're doing. I'm here to proclaim the joy and honor and privilege that you get when you see children understand, learn, and grow in their relationship with Jesus, to be friends and mentors with them. It is a great challenge sometimes, but a great privilege. So let's read Psalm 78, the first eight verses together. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. Things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell them to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise to tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. This psalm, the whole thing, consists of seven stanzas, seven sections, that tell us the whole story. And this is what he is saying in the first three verses. And verse two might seem a little confusing, this parable and this dark sayings of old. But the writer of this psalm, usually attributed to Asaph, one of David's chief musicians, is going to outline the history of Israel, this parable, the history of Israel, that leaves us with a big question at the end. He's going to outline aspects of Israel's dark history of rebelling and leave us with a challenge. That is the mystery. That is the parable. But this isn't just looking at history to, to look at history and study it, my, like we might read a biography or a textbook. There's a purpose. And this purpose is to hand off to the next generation. We see this in verse 4. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might, and the wonders that he has done. And the purpose, this we see in verses 6 and 7, that they would know God, they would pass it on to their children, and that their hope would be in him and follow his commands, to know him steadfastly forever and rooted in it. And the big emphasis continued in 7 and verse 8, that this is such a big deal, because the history that Asaph goes on to outline throughout this is that time and time again, in Israel, they were rebellious. They were not faithful to God. So God has revealed himself in his word, and he commands it to pass it on, to teach, to hand off not just stories or morals, but hand off the wonder of God. We see that God's commands that we teach the wonder of who he is. And we tell that because verse 6, so that the future generation might no, and he says even future generations beyond that. And so now we get to read it thousands of years later and know. But it is also a challenge to us in three ways that the next generation might know. First, they should know God's works. Second, they should put faith in God. And third, follow him steadfastly. 
So we trust God, we believe him, and we should follow it. So passing on to the next generation is a call of discipleship, not just for parents, primarily parents, yes, but not just for them. Asaph goes on in this psalm to proclaim the coming, to the coming generation what God has done. Israel was commanded as a nation to pass it on. And we as the church also get charged with passing on to the next generation. So a very important question to ask is, what is the greatest goal or accomplishment a person can have? Like, what should each person try to attain in life? Because I think most of us would say, without a goal, without a plan, we're just going to wander around aimlessly. With a goal, we can be intentional. So if we do not know what we are raising children to, then we are going to fail. We need to know the goal and pursue it. So really this question can be said, what is the chief end of man, humankind? And if you're familiar with the Westminster Catechism, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. I'll explain why there's a duck on the screen in just a second. So years ago, um, we had hosted a youth conference at the church I was working at, and each kid that came got a rubber duck. Here's mine from that conference. And I don't think we can pull it up, but part of this idea, we were talking about identity and the purpose of man. And I was inspired by a scene from Sesame Street where Ernie is playing with the duck. And he says, rubber ducky, you're the one. You make bath time so much. You guys remember? Fun, right? So rubber ducks have a purpose in life to make bath time fun. And each of the kids that came to the conference got their own rubber duck, and they each had like an occupation. We had a firefighter, a policeman, a swimmer, different things that these ducks were. And we used that to illustrate that just like us, whether adults, you have different jobs, different hobbies, kids, you have different sports you're in, different classes you like, different friend groups you're a part of. Just like us, that we're in different spots around the world, we have one purpose, and that is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So just like the duck might have been a bunch of different things, policeman, firefighter, army man, swimmer, whatever it was, they still had one purpose to make bath time fun. And us as humans have one purpose wherever we're at to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is the call of us as we pass on to the next generation. We usually use the word discipleship when talking about this. And discipleship is the condition or situation of being a disciple, a follower, or a student of some philosophy. So basically being taught or brought up in a way of thinking and doing things. So the reality is that we all are disciples of something. Every human being is a disciple. And our goal is to disciple kids in this church to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Like with the Olympic runners, we heard about before, we can be just one bad handoff away from missing it. Because we can try to make good Christians, but that isn't what God is looking for. It doesn't matter how many games we play at youth group, how many cool videos we play for CW Kids, or gadgets we get, or how many kids use the nine square out there. None of that matters. It also doesn't matter how many verses a kid can recite because some kids can memorize really easily, some can't. Or how many Bible stories they can tell if we're going to miss that they should follow God with their hearts and lives. That is true discipleship. So I want you to look around for just a moment. 
Usually at this part of our service, we'd have a lot of empty chairs as kids were dismissed. But we don't have those empty chairs today. We have a great time with you kids in here today. So look around. And I want you to imagine, with all these wonderful kids, if two-thirds just disappeared. Answers in Genesis did a study that they published in 2011 in a book called Already Gone. They surveyed 1,020-somethings that grew up attending church. And of these 1,020-somethings, 61% of them attended Sunday school regularly. And this is what they found about the group that attended Sunday school. And this is just a few of their findings. You can look it up if you'd like. So this group that attended Sunday school were more likely not to believe that all the accounts and stories of the Bible are true and accurate. More likely to doubt the Bible because it was written by men. More likely to doubt the Bible because it was not translated correctly. And more likely to have become anti-church through the years. This is an epidemic that has already happened in the church because we haven't handed off well. Churches across America and it's not the college's fault. I want to read this quote from it. I think one of the most revealing and yet challenging statistics in the entire survey, and something we didn't expect, most people assume that students are lost in college. We've always been trying to prepare our kids for college, and I still think that's a critical thing to do, of course. But it turns out that only 11% of those who have left the church were still attending during the college years. Almost 90% of them were lost in middle school and high school. By the time they got to college, they were already gone. About 40% are leaving the church during elementary and middle school years. Most people assumed that elementary and middle school is a fairly neutral environment where children toe the line and follow in the footsteps of their parents' spirituality. Not so. I believe that over half of these kids were lost before we got them into high school. Whatever diseases are fueling the epidemic of losing our young people, they are infecting our students much, much earlier than most assumed. Let me say this again. We are losing many more people by middle school and many more by high school than we will ever lose in college. Now, I do want to point out that in this study, there was not a huge difference maker in these young people's lives, swayed for or against faith. Uh, it, it wasn't that kids that stayed or left were homeschooled or public schooled. It wasn't even swayed male or female. On the surface, people that left the church looked pretty much like the ones that stayed. But that's the whole point. It's not surface level. It's about getting deeper to the heart. So we have to move beyond just sharing of intellect. Otherwise, we reduce faith to memorizing like stuff from school. Like I learned in fifth grade, in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. But that will never have any impact on my life. I'll never forget it. And as we shape and help develop the loves of the next generation, they will seek to know. And then we can so wonderfully pass on knowing the things God has done. The heart is our chamber of what we love and we crave and we long for. This can be seen in any student. Babylon B, if you're familiar with that, a Christian satire website, had this for one of their headlines. But it's pretty true. Child who has all 802 Pokemon memorized, having trouble remembering Awana memory verses. Right? Or a student who knows all the stats from their video games or their favorite sports teams. 
Or maybe take a look close to home that some of you have stats and records and names memorized of your favorite professional or college teams, but you have a hard time remembering what we talked about last Sunday. Or what you read in your Bible yesterday. So please, with me this morning, take this challenge seriously to be a church that doesn't just teach kids, but disciples them. Because sports aren't bad, video games aren't bad, having the hobbies we enjoy and love doing is not bad. But what are we discipling into? What is our heart yearning towards? What are we passionate about? What are we passing on to the next generation? Because if we truly believe we are the family of God and discipleship is a family affair, then we are all involved. Because it's not just about our mind. It's about our hearts. It's about what we love and what we want. We see this simply in the command of Jesus in Luke 10, 27. And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And this goes all the way back to how God revealed himself in Deuteronomy 6, 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So each of us has this wanter inside our hearts, our desires, a version of the good life that we're longing for, that we hope for and we strive for. But what happens when the next generation is not discipled to put their hope in Jesus? They put it in the wrong thing. Well, when that happens, we have a generation that doesn't truly follow God. So as we seek to make a successful handoff to the next generation and make disciples, we have to keep in mind that being a disciple is more than just this head knowledge, more than being able to quote verses or repeat stories. Jesus isn't content to just simply deposit new ideas into your mind. He is after nothing less than your wants, your love, your longings. There's this great book called You Are What You Loved. You Are What You Love, and I highly re recommend reading it. The author states how much this idea of intellectual Christianity has pervaded and kind of snuck its way into churches. And he was flipping through a Christian magazine, and at the center of an ad for a, was at, at the center of this was an ad for a Bible memorization program. And it was a picture of a man, and sprawled across the forehead was the claim, "You are what you know." And the real truth is, you are what you love. So we need to know and love God with all that we are. So as part of this commitment this morning, let us commit to be a church that loves God with all that we are faithfully and discipling the next generation to love him as well. Learning to love, becoming disciples, is more like practicing scales on an instrument than it is just like learning music theory. The goal is for love to become natural not just gaining and retaining information. That, that the natural movements of our hearts and mind goes towards God. It becomes our first nature. And as we shape the love of the next generation, the history we've has passed down becomes much more rich and meaningful. And we need to make sure that we are faithful to God in telling these stories. The story that we hear so much growing up of David and Goliath, whether it's in a children's Bible story or you were one of the cool kids with veggie tales, right? It's this well-known story, but it's been taught to kids to be, look, God let David conquer Goliath. All your problems are going to be conquered too. 
right? That's how it gets taught a lot. But it doesn't say that at all. David points to Jesus, not to me. I fail. I'm more like Saul or David's brothers or the army that were cowards. Jesus steps up and does what we cannot. This radically changes how we're looking at these stories. So beloved church, how can you be a part of our disciple-making process? I want to first say this. You don't have to be perfect to be a good disciple-maker. You don't have to be perfect. I'll be honest, we already know you aren't perfect. I'm not perfect. Pastor Jordan's not perfect. None of us are. We don't need perfect people. We need loving adults people that get the vision for glorifying God and enjoying him forever to come and spend time with kids. It really is that simple. You get to hang out with kids. It doesn't even have to be on Wednesday nights, though we'd love for you to join us. As I said earlier, these kids are the church. Kids, you are the church today. So adults, do you greet them and say good morning? Do you introduce yourself? Do you ask them what they learned in kids' worship? Do you talk to the kids that, uh, of the families that attend your small group? The way we treat kids sets up expectation. If we treat them like they're not really followers of God, they're going to learn that. If we treat them like they are a part of the church as we talk to them like we would anyone else, they rise up to follow him. If you've ever been around kids, and kids, we can be honest, right? There's sometimes this relentless battle over being the best. I want to be the best at whatever activity we have going on. Or I want to have the most, right? If someone else, but then there's this. If someone else has one more cracker than I do at snack time, that dreaded word, fair. Right? Kids are going to argue, be mean, sometimes bite you, boast. So how do we respond as people with a focus on discipling? We do what Jesus did. He corrected and served and led by example. Now, the disciples we see on many occasions act like oversized toddlers, not unlike us sometimes. And in Luke 22, 24 through 27, as they argue about who is the greatest among them, Jesus answers, because Jesus is the greatest among them, and this is how he answers in Luke 22, 27. For who is the greater one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Like Jesus, we are called to serve and love others even when it's difficult. It's not easy, it's hard, but we're called to love and serve others. We equip and teach so that the next generation can equip and teach. And if you don't know, a lot of our 6th through 12th graders, they serve in kids' worship. They come and they, they help lead, they help with tech, they dance and help lead worship. They talk to kids, they help reinforce and teach what they're learning. Parents need help with just about everything, if I'm being honest, even as a parent. I see online parents asking for community. I need it looking for advice about potty training, feeding, picky eaters, whatever it is. We as parents need to be just as vigilant about our kids knowing Jesus. No, no, let me say it differently. We need to be more vigilant about our kids knowing Jesus. If my child never eats a Brussels sprout in his life, he'll live. 
But without Jesus, there is no hope. So we're calling on a church that serves and loves the next generation. And you might be thinking, how does serving in nursery and playing with toys on the floor a part of discipleship? Well, we, we've spent time and effort putting in to stages of this, this age, this is what we want kids to learn. And when they're in nursery, we want them to feel safe. We want them to know that Jesus loves them, and we want to know that the church loves them. So by playing on the floor or reading a story about Jesus, that's hugely impactful as we set foundations as we're going to teach kids over the years. On Wednesday nights or in kids' worship, talking about the Bible, talking about how Jesus affects your life is discipleship. And that can even just be done while you're standing, getting a cookie, and another kid walks up. You don't have to have some special degree or anything. We don't, we're not looking for super ninja Christians. They don't exist. Humility and love for Jesus is what is needed. So we're calling for mentors, encouragers, calling for people to love kids and teens with time and actions, and changed hearts to proclaim the grace for sinners. Kids know they get it wrong. More often, when students are in our, our youth group, they're asking, how, can God really love me? I've done so much. Can God really love me? We need patience and grace to proclaim a God who loves and knows my wrongs and died for me knowing all the ways I would mess up. And if you are older, whatever that means to you, I have the wisdom to not define that word. But if you are older, you have wisdom. Pass it on, not just to parents, but to the little children. And the reality is, if you're a high schooler, if you're 20-somethings, all the way on up, you have something to bring to these kids. Job 12, 12. Wisdom is with the aged and understanding in length of days. So one of our vision points is small groups. And if you didn't know, that we actually have small groups for kids every, from the age of five up until adults because they're important. For the five-year-olds, we do it in kids' worship. After our teaching, we break up and we discuss it. We talk about our week. We talk about what they're learning. On Wednesday nights, our middle school and high schoolers do small groups. We talk about our week. We talk about what we're learning. For adults, we get together. We talk about our week. We talk about what we're learning. It's an important part of community. So what would it look like to spend time talking to kids and students about their week, about what they are learning, and to encourage them in God, godliness? And they like it when someone says, hey, what'd you do this weekend? What'd you do this week? How was school? Right? And they're like, it's almost over! Right? Um, right? Just, just ask questions and to talk. And these kids, they're funny, they're cute, they're weird, they're silly. And this psalm goes on to tell the truthful, honest history of Israel. They rebelled, but God has shown mercy again and again. Israel, we see over and over again, rejecting God for idols. And Asaph is honest about the history. And likewise, we must be honest to talk about the failures of ourselves and the church. This psalm calls out Israel and the people of God and then highlights God's mercy and faithfulness. I think of some, something recent, church, some in the recent church history of issues that have been brought up. Uh, there was one in the movie Jesus Revolution 
And so it's, if you're not familiar with it, it's during the 70s and these, this Jesus freak movement of, of people coming to know Jesus. And so there's this traditional church and the parishioners start complaining about these newcomers, these hippies. Man, they've got dirty bare feet. And what does the pastor do? He does what Jesus does. He washes their feet. Some members of the church leave in disgust. Others are touched by the newcomer's sincerity. And sadly, attitudes of judgment or haughtiness or self-righteousness still plague many churches, and we need to lay that down. My grandfather loved Jesus, but he had this incredibly strong conviction that no man should have a beard. And you can see how much he affected me. <laughs> right? You had to dress a certain way to go to church. You had to style your hair in such a way, but that is not the gospel. So as we reflect on this psalm, and it brings to light truth to the church, so that I lay down my own opinions and traditions so that they are not a stumbling block for the next generation. Opinions around music, clothes, beard, hairstyles, hair colors. I remember growing up, I tried to chew gum at church one day, and I got in a lot of trouble from my mom. I was told, That's, you don't do that in church. And it wasn't until I was literally in college <laughs> that I found out that was not a universal rule. <laughs> I had friends like, oh yeah, I've always chewed gum. I was flabbergasted. <laughs> and so how can I separate what I think is right or my opinions from what God really says matters? We need to know his word, to study it regularly so we know God, we know his works, and we are obeying so that we can pass that on to the next generation. And if we're not careful, we can be swept away in our own opinions or hot topic issues or whatever. So we have a children's book uh, that we got when my son was born. And it's from this series called That's Not My Series. And so this specific one was That's Not My Cow. And you go through all these pages and it says like, that's not my cow, its hooves are too rough. That's not my cow, its ears are too soft. And you get to the last page. And it is supposed to say, that's my cow, and then explains how this thing knows it's his cow, right? Thrilling book. Um, but I read it for years that the last page also said, that's not my cow. And I was like, this is a sad book. This never finds his cow. And I was reading it one day, and Jenny goes, you know that's not what that says. I was like, what? She's like, read it again. And I read it, and it says, that's my cow. But I had been for years, years, <laughs> reading this as, that's not my cow. And so we're not careful. We can easily be swept away or put our own opinions on this or just miss something. So we need to be honest about our failures, the failures of the past, the failures of the church, our personal failures. And we proclaim the good news and mercy of God so that the next generation may know and follow. This really boils down to passing on wisdom. I want to read for us Judges. 2, 10 through 11. And it says, And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. If we are not careful, if we do not hand this off well, this is what is going to happen. There will be a generation that does not know God. There will be a generation that rejects. 
Now, God can do amazing things of, like he does in the Bible where he raises up prophets and people like Paul to go and proclaim. But we need to be very careful that we are passing it on. Now, I'm going to take a moment and talk to parents real quick. But the things we are talking about are really important for any person or any godly home, whether you're single, married, looking to have kids, currently have kids, or your kids are out the door. Parents, you are the main disciplers of your children. We as the church come alongside you to help. And I want to show this virtually um, with some slides. So every week has 168 hours, and I looked up some statistics so we can look at this. On average, your kid spends 56 hours sleeping. 56 hours a week sleeping. Next, school. School, they spend on average for school and extracurriculars, sometimes more, maybe a little bit less, 45 hours. Then we come to church. We sometimes get three hours a week with your kids. And lastly, time with you becomes 65 hours. And you can see in the different levels of marbles I tried to illustrate on there. And statistically, most kids spend the 65 hours that they would have with parents not even talking to their parents, rather looking at screens, social media, YouTube, TV, and movies. And as I said, we are all being discipled by something. Our hearts latch onto a vision that we hold onto, that we love most. So what are your kids learning to love? Because if we don't use our time with our kids, well, then their phones, their teachers, their friends are going to disciple them, not you. This is one of the reasons that on Wednesday nights we send a letter home every week detailing what we talked about, the verses we're reflecting and meditating on, not just memorizing, reflecting on and trying to understand, questions for you to talk about as a family, and sometimes even activities to do. We understand that discipling is hard, and that is why we as a church want to come around and help even has me sometimes in awe that people think my job is just to talk to the kids. My job is also to work with parents and families, to come alongside you as you raise your kids. That means walking through sin, discipline, and other issues. And parents, I want you to hear this. You don't have to be perfect to be good disciple makers or good parents. It takes a lot of work and a lot of effort, but you don't have to be perfect. You're going to mess it up. You're going to fail at times, but keep going. So everyone is being discipled and doing some aspect of discipling. Think about it. Every parent who likes a certain sports team naturally disciples their kids in that. I don't even like watching sports, but I know that anytime someone asks me who my favorite football team is growing up in my Texas household, I am supposed to say the Cowboys with all the shame and regret that comes from being their fan. I was discipled to be a cowboy fan. We watched it together. We cheered together. We had parties around the cowboys. So what are you discipling your kids in? Right? Are you intentional, well, the same way you might watch sports together, that you're studying God's word, that you're worshiping, that you're even throwing parties around it, right? Like we have feasts, a part of the Christian calendar, like Easter and Christmas, and are we saying this is why we're together? Because we are discipling our kids to be faithful followers, the question is of what? 
Is it of sports? Is it Jesus? Social media? Politics? What is it? We are not called to raise perfect kids or rule followers. We're not raising kids to be a certain thing politically or for a certain job or income. The greatest call on a parent is that your children know and follow Jesus. Everything else is secondary. They can honor God as plumbers, electricians, doctors, teachers, missionaries, daycare workers, whatever it is. And much more is caught than taught. And this applies to everyone. Something my parents said that I always thought was interesting was, you know, do as I say, not what I do. And now that I'm a parent, I say the same thing. But students and kids watch and learn so much more from what you do. I've always been inspired when I talk to people and I'm like, what did you see in your parents that, that made you want to love Jesus? And I'm like, every morning I came down and my dad and my mom were sitting at the table together drinking coffee and reading their Bibles. And I just was like, man, they're, they love Jesus so much they're doing this. I'm like, whoa, that's, that's awesome. How can I do that as a parent? What are you doing that's pointing your kids to Jesus? Are we quick to say sorry and ask forgiveness from our kids when we sin against them? When we yell and get angry, are we really quick to say, hey, I'm sorry? Just like you have to say sorry and ask for forgiveness, daddy does too. Are you quick to talk about the ways you have failed or things you have learned, passing on your wisdom? You talk about ways God has been faithful or prayers he has answered. Israel was called to teach and talk about these things with their kids, even build monuments to them. We should follow the same practice, both as parents and as the whole church. We need to acknowledge that our heart is the center point for our most fundamental longings that we make our decisions around. We were designed by our creator to be body, mind, and spirit. So it is our job to shape our little ones, their body, minds, and spirit towards the goal. So again, what is the centrality of your home? What defines your home? What liturgies do you have in place? Liturgies are just repeated practices that have an effect on us. So what are you doing regularly? Think about putting into practice family Bible reading, prayer, sharing what you are thankful to God for, even confession. Talk about living on mission and sharing the gospel with family and friends God has around you. Parents, we want to come around you, to love you, to support you. To be honest about when we fail and when we do well and to encourage one another. Kids, little ones, know that we as a church love you so much. I love you guys so much. We talked about from that passage in Joshua that after a group of parents died, the next generation didn't follow Jesus. And I want to encourage you, kids, to listen, to have your ears open, especially over these next six weeks, to fill out the notes, to be paying attention. Take to heart what you learn on Sundays and Wednesdays. Think about it. Ask questions about it. When you or your family read your Bibles, listen, ask questions. We want to point you to Jesus. And I know it can sometimes be hard that we're reading these stories about like, you know, people speaking, God speaking to Elijah and God doing this. And I've gotten questions like, well, why, why won't God speak to me? I pray and he never speaks to me. And that's, that's a question my own son has asked me. And I love this quote from John Piper, kids. 
This means that God does not intend to speak to every generation the way he spoke to the generation that came out of Egypt. Succeeding generations must learn about the will of God and the mighty works of God from their fathers. Our children must learn about it from us. Right? That's why we're talking about passing this on. Right? That Asaph wrote this so that the coming generations would know, that they would see it, they would learn, because God isn't going to speak the same way to every generation. And so we're pointing our kids to the Bible, to God, to say, this is what God is saying to you. This is what we are following because it is his word and it is his speaking now. Jesus loves you. There is grace and forgiveness and life change. God invites you into his family and kids. We invite you too to partake of this. Be with us, to learn with us. And again, we love you. Listen to wisdom that is given. Right? Our kids and students, find a mentor. Spend time with them. Ask hard questions. Share your struggles. And I want to hammer home this idea that this plan of handing off to the next generation is not just for parents or relatives like aunts, uncles, grandparents. It's important. It's not even just for those that serve at CW Kids or in student ministry. But it is not just for those serving in the specific next generations. It's for all of us. It takes a church to make disciples. You are being watched, whether it's here or someone recognizes you at Walmart or Pizza Ranch or wherever it is. I encourage you, start praying for the next generation. Everything from the babies here to the young adults. Maybe even do something really scary and talk to one of them. Covered the wrong side. Talk to one of them. (laughs) Ask them how life is going. Be a part of their life. Think through being a disciple maker, helping us as a church make a successful handoff. And it can be hard. I know some of you did not have parents that loved Jesus or or didn't know how to disciple well. And you made it okay. God has brought along spiritual mothers and fathers to step up and be there for you. Think about that. As the family of God, we have the opportunity to step in and be spiritual mothers and fathers. And we need those here at Crosswinds, in student ministry, in CW Kids, in our young adult ministry. We have kids that don't know and love Jesus but they do get dropped off here on Wednesday nights or Sunday mornings. So we have this awesome opportunity to step up and teach and put these things in their hearts to know God, to love him and follow him forever. Could be as simple as every week on Sunday going out of your way to talk or sit with the child, showing them Jesus loves them. Or you could come and volunteer. We'd love to have you. Be teachers, be support people, just, just come and be in the community and involved. Pray about it. Maybe talk to someone's parents and see if you can take them fishing or hiking or shopping or play disc golf, whatever it is. There are two kinds of churches, a mule church and a thoroughbred church, and yes, I'm talking about Horses. Thoroughbreds are prized horses. They are used for mating, competing, and so much more. They're highly valued as they reproduce. They make great horses, and some can trace their lineage back ages. 
A mule, on the other hand, is this weird thing you get when you cross a donkey and a horse. What happens is they can't reproduce. They're a great worker, they will work hard, carry crazy amount of stuff for you, but they can't reproduce. And when the mule dies, there's no legacy beside it did some good work. And I pray that we are not a mule church, that we work hard, but in so many years that it just doesn't disappear, but we are faithful to the next generation. Let us be that church. That we make sure the next generation loves God and knows what he has done, to set their hope in him and keep his commands. Again, I want to say this is not me up here begging for volunteers. I'm here to proclaim the joy and honor of being a church that follows God's word and disciples young people. To see children understand, learn, grow. I want to close with this quote from a book called Teaching the Gospel to Kids. Jesus tells us that the work of proclaiming God's kingdom is dangerous. It takes courage. It demands earnest prayer. It's more about faith than giftedness, and it requires no resources other than those God provides. It's a high-stakes spiritual battle using supernatural weapons, and anyone who is willing to engage the fight on this level is needed for the cause. Such an adventurer will reap a rare mix of power, humility, and wide-eyed joy. I heard a pastor preaching on this topic, and he said there should be a line of people waiting to get into serving in family ministry. I agree with him. This is where the action is. This is where we see God working. Come and join us as we see the joy, power, and humility in what God is doing. We're going to close in prayer together. So kids, we're going to do it again. One hand up, another hand up. Clap in your lap. Let's pray. God, thank you that you give us the challenge and the privilege to be your family. Lord, that a church of many generations even in this room right now help us be faithful to teach your word, to lead by example, to help each other, and to have our lives be focused on you so that the next generation may know. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. A complete archive of sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thank you for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.